So if you would turn to 1 John, this is John's first letter. He has two others that he writes. This letter doesn't begin like the other New Testament epistles. It does not identify the author, but we do know it's John through scholarship, through the the study that men have done. There is no greeting, and at the end of this letter, there is no farewell. His approach is not logical in a way that you would see in, in Paul's letters. He jumps around a bit with some repetitive themes, light, darkness, love, fellowship, worldliness, and obedience, just to name a few. But there, there's a reason for this. There's a reason why John writes the way he writes. When, when God's Spirit inspired men to write sacred scripture... He didn't ignore their personalities, their age, their situation, their experiences, or even their writing styles. When John wrote this letter, he was an old man. Written around 90 AD, he was probably in his 80s. And as an old man, his age is reflected in his writing style. And I see, as I get older, I see some of myself in John. I tend to be repetitive like John is in this letter. I tend to tell the same stories again and again like John might in this letter. And in my mind, I'm not old, but my mailbox tells me differently as AARP continually sends letters to me saying I could have joined years ago. (laughs) My kids think I'm old. Hey, dad, let me carry that for you. Listen, it's a pillow. I can carry it up the steps. As As an old man, John shares his thoughts in this letter with emotion, with tenderness, and with repeated themes. Now, John spent his later years in and around Ephesus. It appears he settled in the church that was established by Paul decades earlier. The Ephesian church is one of seven churches in Asia Minor, what we know as modern-day Turkey today. And at the time, the Ephesian church, at this, and when Paul established that church, it was free from controversy. And you, as you read Paul's letter to the Ephesians, you see he's not addressing any corrective issues. He is, he is really just propelling the, the name of Christ and his, his church forward. And now, But now, decades later, this church in Ephesus is battling the, the heretical teachings of what is known as Gnosticism, uh, a secret and higher knowledge that was being perpetrated by false teachers. And false teachers were denying, most critically, they were denying the humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ. And I no need to give you the theological labels that, that this is. It's simply that the incarnation of Christ is under assault. They're assaulting the gospel that Paul had preached decades before. And as a, as a patriarch and as a shepherd, as a, as a caring pastor. Um, and as you read in, in John's letters, throughout his letters, again and again, he refers to these people as his children. So he is a, he's a father to this church. He's a father to these people. He's been with them. He's been among them. 
He's cared for them, even as an older man. And so he has a deep love for this church. So John writes to this spiritual family, sharing with them his testimony of being with Jesus Christ and and attesting to his humanity and his divinity. Read with me just the first four verses of chapter 1, and you will see what John is trying to communicate. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And if you remember, go back to John's gospel, John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word of life here is Jesus is what he's talking about. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest the incarnation to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. When we began our series in John's gospel a few years ago, we actually began in John 20, where John reveals at the end of the book his purpose for writing his gospel. John 20, 30, 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but... These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote that gospel so that people would come to have life in Christ. He does the same thing in 1 John. This letter addresses a number of important themes and doctrinal truths, but over all these stands the primary reason why he wrote this first letter. And look with me in John chapter, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Again, similar to his gospel, he writes this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John wrote his gospel that we might have eternal life, salvation in Christ. He wrote this epistle that we might know we have eternal eternal life, assurance in Christ. He writes this letter particularly to encourage and to strengthen the assurance of the saints in Ephesus because they were under attack, because their belief in Christ, the incarnation, his humanity, his divinity was under assault and it was causing doubt. It was causing confusion So to combat these heresies that are creeping into the church and that's causing these these believers, these children of his in the faith, as he calls them, um, he he writes this letter. He writes this letter and and in a way he provides three tests or pathways to help his readers determine their assurance, to know what determines their assurance in Christ. The false teachers caused confusion. They caused doubt. They caused fear. And, and questions abounded to these young believers. Now, although in the Ephesian church at this time that John is writing, it's by now a second and third generation. And so Paul 
or so John writes to them because questions abound. Is the gospel true? The false teachers are undermining. Was Jesus really a man? Did he really suffer and die on the cross for our sins? Am I missing something? Oh, how often I've heard that as a pastor in the church. Controversy comes and, and the first question Members ask, am I missing something? What is happening that I don't know about? And suspicions arise and they begin to undermine the truth. Is there more I need to do to be saved? And so John wisely responds. Listen, assurance is so much more than I'm going to heaven. It's much broader than that. Although that is its final and most important destination, it's much broader. Assurance is about our trust in the promises of God. When we do sin, are we really forgiven? When I do suffer, is God really faithful? When I feel battered by a broken and sinful world, can I find hope? Where do we find assurance? We find assurance in the faith that God has given us in the Son, in Jesus Christ. We find it in His Scriptures, truthful, infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient for life. And we find assurance in His church as we serve together for the purpose of God. Now, as we study John's letter, he provides the answers to these important questions that, when answered, will properly give us, I think, confidence in our assurance. And here are the the three questions. Here are three questions that, that come out of John's letter. One, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Elementary question. You think, oh, I got that. But the humanity, the divinity, the incarnation of Christ is under assault today. In the evangelical church, it is under assault today. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? John also asked, do you obey the commands of God? You will see that throughout his letter. And thirdly, do you love the people of God? So let's look at the first one. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? John begins and ends his letter the same way he begins and ends his gospel. At the beginning, he establishes the humanity and the divinity of Christ, as we we just mentioned in in 1 John 1, 1 through 4, and then in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning, he takes us back to before creation. In the beginning. In the first four verses of this letter, he draws his readers into his testimony and his experience of being with Christ. Now, listen, even 50 years later, this is about how long time has passed since since John walked with the Savior. Since John and Jesus and Peter and Matthew and James were, were hanging out together, even 50 years later, John still remembers what it's like to be with Jesus. Think about it. He, he remembers his touch. The foot washing. Leaning his head. Against the chest of Jesus. In the last supper. He remembers the miracles he saw. The dead. Being raised to life. 5,000 being fed. The savior walking on water. 
He remembers the teachings he heard. He remembers the care he received. He remembers the suffering that he witnessed of his friend and savior. He remembers the death that he anguished over. How can he ever forget the amazing day when he ran to the tomb and it was empty? And how could he ever forget the shock of hiding in an upper room and suddenly seeing the Savior standing among them, saying, peace be with you. John remembers. John remembers, and it is from this experience, his history, that he he writes to this church, I know, I know Jesus. Don't, don't be swayed. Don't be fooled. Don't be led astray by these false teachers. He tells them that this is the truth. And if you believe this truth, you will have assurance. Look at chapter 5 of 1 John. John writes to remind them of what he knows. Verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. There's assurance for you, John writes. You know, in his letter to the Ephesian church, Paul in chapter 4 tells those believers that, that they're not experiencing controversy at the time, but they must mature in their, their lifestyle. They must mature in their doctrinal beliefs. Otherwise, they're going to be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. That was about 30 years earlier than this letter. And now, 30 years later, it appears that's what's happened. These churches being tossed about by every wind of doctrine. The winds of false teachings come in. Many years ago, Marilyn and I were, <laughs> we go to our favorite beach, Destin, Florida. And uh, we'd been there for a week. We were getting ready to drive home. I packed the car, packed the car top carrier. And we get on the road and... Marilyn hears a noise and she kind of see things flying. She goes, do you close the car top carrier? I said, well, of course I close the car top carrier. Do I look like an idiot? <laughs> Except then when I looked in the rearview mirror, there were clothes and shoes <laughs> and blow up toys strewn across the highway. And I pulled over. And just as I got out, I watched a semi run over my golf shoes as they went 30 feet in the air. And I look into the car and my children and my wife are howling. (laughs) (laughs) Everything was fine with the car top carrier until we started moving and the wind pushed that car top carrier open and everything went scattered. And it's like this here, every wind of doctrine comes in and suddenly their faith, their assurance, their beliefs begin to get scattered. So John writes to them and his first test is to make sure that they understand the Christology of his message that the first hallmark of an assurance for a believer is that. Jesus is 
who he said he was. He is fully God. And he is fully man. And the incarnation is true. Do you believe Jesus is the son of God? That's the first test of assurance. The second test is, do you obey the commands of God? And you will see this throughout John's epistle. John's premise is, if you claim to know Jesus, but do not obey him, your words are false. If you truly believe in Jesus Christ, it will show itself in the way you live, how you act, what you say, how you think. It will display itself in righteousness or or right living. Look at chapter 2, verse 26. Actually, I've lost my place. Uh, Verse 15, sorry. Do not love the world and the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John's litmus test is this. If you love God, you will keep his commandments. He goes on to say in verse 15 of chapter 2. Do not love the world or things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but it is from the world. He goes on to say that you can only truly love God if you do not love the world or you do not love the things of the world. Listen, there's a, there's a great pull by the world to draw our affections to itself. It advertises itself with great success. It promotes pleasure. It offers promises that cloud our vision of God. And in the end, it's a pathway to death. The road is the road, the, the road to sin is a slow fade. It, it, it's when black and white turn to gray. John is telling his readers not to be deceived. That knowledge of God is not enough. A profession of faith is not enough. Your assurance will be evident if you obey his commands, do not love the world and do not love the things of the world. He says, my little children, I am writing, writing these things to you so you may not sin. If you love him, you obey his commandments. Do you obey the commands of God? So that's the second test of assurance. Do you believe Jesus is the son of God. Do you obey his commandments? And then the last test of assurance, he asks this question. Do you love the people of God? That might seem like an easy one. But just spend enough time hanging out together. Is there anybody in this church who has can say that they've never once been offended by anybody in this church. (laughs) Yeah. 
Welcome to the real world. Look at chapter 4, verse 21. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Listen, we can assume that John is observing some problems in this local church. People were not loving one another as they should. And this is a reality in every church. We can grow familiar with one another. We just welcome new members, Dana and Helen, and how exciting that we have them here. And you're going to get to meet them and you'll have hospitality with them and, and you'll build a relationship with them. And then you'll get to know them. It's exciting at the beginning and then you'll get to know them. And, and I've gotten to know them. They're great folks. But they're people just like you and me. And your people just like they are. And you get familiar with one another. And you get complacent with one another. You get complacent in your care. You can complacent in your serving. You get lazy in your willingness to walk out biblical offenses. And gossip and slander begin to creep into the church. Which leads to strife and not love. John is saying, listen, this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God also loves his brother. And we have a fine working definition of what it means to love in 1 Corinthians 13. It's not as though we don't know what love looks like. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. We do that one great, don't we? In marriage, in family life. Yeah, John understands. No doubt John remembers Jesus' words in John 13. A new command I give you. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 1 John 2, 9-11, through 11, John writes, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Not only will all men know that you are a disciple of Christ by your love for one another, but you will be assured that you're a disciple of Christ by your love for others. Look at the wonderful assurance John gives us in, in chapter 3. Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. John wants his readers to be assured in their faith that if they believe rightly, they obey rightly, they love rightly, they can be confident and they can be assured of their relationship that they too, as we read in chapter 1, verse 4, that, verse 3, we have fellowship with the Father and we have fellowship with one another. Now, throughout his letter, John repeatedly tells us why he is writing. And so as you're reading over these next weeks and months, as we start our expository series next Sunday morning, as Devin begins in, in chapter 1, verse 1, 
Um, and he dives much deeper into what I've done today. Um, be aware of John's repetitiveness. And it's not just because he's a, a doddering, aging old man who sits in a rocking chair like I do on Sunday afternoons. But he is, he is trying to communicate truth. He's trying to communicate love. And in 2.1, he says, My little children, I am writing, the, writing these things to you so you may not sin. 2.12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. 2.13, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young man, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you not because you do not know the truth in 2.21, but because you know it. And so John, John is, again and again, you will see, he says, I write to you. Again and again, he calls them little children. Again and again, he uses themes of light and darkness. Again and again, he talks about fellowship and love. Again and again, and he, he ends towards the very end of, of John John's letter in verse 13, he, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. That's what this letter is about. That when you are done, when we are done with this expository series, that you, you can leave here. You know. You know you belong to Christ. Regardless of what experiences you walk through in this life, what sufferings you face or trials or persecutions or just the, the, the mundane daily living you experience, that you are God's because you believe Jesus is the Son of God. Because you obey His commands. Because you love one another. Are there times that your assurance is shaken? Listen, false teachers are on the prowl today more than ever. They have greater access into our lives more than ever through social media. Sheep in, in wolves' clothing? No, wolves in sheep's clothing make their way into the church through books that promise closer connection with God. Books like The Shack. Messages by gifted public speakers that suddenly undermine the truth with plausible heresies. And I, I, there are numerous names I could throw out. The online world is as dangerous as it is helpful. God's word is under assault today as unreasonable, bigoted, racist, misogynistic, narrow-minded, and outdated. Believers in Christ alone for our salvation are considered exclusive, intolerant, and lacking in diversity. The backlash for us to live as Bible-believing Christians is being labeled as a hate group today. Just recently, an evangelical Presbyterian PCA church down in Florida was labeled a hate group. Simply because they stand on the word of God. The at, and this atmosphere, brothers and sisters, is only growing and it will test your assurance. Sadly, it can come from within the church as well as from without. Professing evangelical Christians today are sadly being drawn into the culture's worldview of marriage, sex, gender, and truth. It will test your courage, and your convictions. What is going to help you stand firm? What is going to help you remain 
in place. Assured of your hope in Christ, your future in Christ, and your present experience where suffering and persecution are happening. What's going to help you stand? I'll tell you what's going to help you stand. First and foremost, God's word is going to help you stand. This unassailable truth, this unchanging, this immutable truth is going to help you stand. It's why we preach God's word. It's why we preach expositorily, that you may know, that you might be assured. It's also going to help you by being in this church. You're going to find assurance as you're gathered with other believers who are walking together with you. Listen, John's letter has been providentially given to us to weather the storms that we are facing and will face. His letter is here for us so that we will be assured and will be strengthened and will stand out in the world as those who have been transformed by Christ and who are courageous enough to stand for that. Because we believe that Jesus died for our sins on the cross. We believe that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that we've been given a hope that only comes Through Jesus Christ. And that is what we stand for. That is what we believe. We are the only ones. With true hope. And we are the only ones who can tell the world. Where they can find God. And where they can find eternal life. In Jesus Christ. And so John. John writes this letter to us. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. That today. God knew. From eternity past, what our climate would be like. And this letter is provided to see us through. Father, thank you for your son who invaded our world, who fully human experienced our world. Thank you for his willingness to come and to die on a cross for our sins and to set us free and to become children of God. Lord, we, we celebrate that and we glorify you for that. Lord, as we study this letter in the days and weeks ahead, we ask that you would, in your kindness and in your mercy, would you open our eyes and would you open our hearts? And by your spirit, would you bring conviction where appropriate, encouragement where needed, and faith in you and your son? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.